welcome uh, machinima filmmakers and people interested in machinima. This is the completely machinima podcast. This episode is devoted to a single film um, called Facing the Wolf by Ian Douglas and Mark Coverdale. It was a choice of the Milan Machinima Festival, which is where uh, I discovered it. Um, I'd like to invite my friends, Tracy Harwood, Phil Rice, and Damien Valentine to share their thoughts about this particular film after I do the introduction to it. As always, you can contact us at talk at completelymachinima.com and notes for the film will be at completelymachinima.com website. Facing the Wolf is a three-part <laughs> film shot in Grand Theft Auto. Um, it was chosen by Mario Batani at the Machinima Festival. Now the Milan Machinima Festival is an academic affair it tends to have a more emphasis on intellectual and um, experimental film. Uh, so I tried to put aside my preconceptions in coming to this film, but it was pretty clear why it was chosen in the page that I don't think is live. Is it still live, that particular page where the interview is, Tracy? No, it's not. Um, but, but, but the interview is gone. Will I be. Yeah. I oh, okay. The, Good. We've got a bit Good. Of a... So we'll have a link to the interview um, in there as well. Basically, it's a three-part film, and it it's hard to describe exactly what it is, but Mario Batani said one of the things that attracted him to the film was the combination of poetry and machinima. The first section is a man walking through uh, a noirish part of Grand Theft Auto, overlaid with a narration of, of poetry. The second part is uh, further uh, continues that, although it introduces a coyote and a crow uh, into it, and the poetry is much less uh, present. And the uh, third part is the, and you still have the walking man in, in the second part. And in the third part, the uh, poetry is almost gone and the man is walking and arrives at a dilapidated house on the outskirts of uh, what looks to be Los Santos, or which is the uh, uh, GTA equivalent of Los Angeles. At the same time, the coyote arrives and the crow arrives at the same place. It makes for an interesting combination of realism and abstraction. Uh, I found it compelling and interesting, although the first section with the poetic uh, recitation was off-putting because it seemed to me that the poetry didn't really connect to the visuals that we were looking at. But then again, I think that was the purpose of, the, of it, that, that there was a contrast between the two. It's clearly a film that a lot of effort and thought and craft went into making. Um, it's a kind of film that forces you to think about uh, what the meaning of it is. Uh, I found the most affecting parts to be part three, where there was no, literally no narration. And I had that strange experience where you don't know why, but the convergence of the coyote and the man and the crow moved me in some way. I don't know why, but it made me feel sad and happy at the same time. Schadenfreude, I think it's the word that the Germans have for that mm -hmm. feeling. 
Um, I, I enjoyed the film very much. I found it fascinating and interesting. And uh, like I said, I was moved by the, the uh, clearly the craft of the film in terms of the shot selection, the, the, the music that was used in it. I would have wanted a few more sound effects because I think it existed primarily with the in-game sound effects. A few more interesting ones like bird uh, wing and uh, ambient ambient sound I think would have been more interesting. But then again, I don't think that was the kind of film they were making. Um, so in a way I sort of admired it for the film that they weren't making. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I think it wore its ideas on its sleeve. And that's another thing that I want to talk about later after our discussion is about is machinima and animation a style or a form of art that ideas can dominate as opposed to feelings. But let's hear what the rest of you have to say. Tracy, what did you think? Yeah, I don't disagree with some of your, your, your comments. Um, that's I, a relief. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, Okay, so so I had a, a look into the into um, the backstory of this a little bit as well. Um, it, was a, it was created by Ian Douglas at the same time that the so the machinima that is so it was being um, created by Ian Douglas at the same time that it was being written as a poem by Mark Coverdale. So they have very different roles in the creative process. Um, and as you sort of said, it's it's kind of told in three parts. Which, which have very different aesthetic representations. Um, now, uh, you, you guys have probably struggled with this more, more than perhaps Damien and I, because both Douglas and Coverdale are Northern UK artists. And I certainly got the feeling um, for that region through all three of these films, even though it's shot in GTA 5, which clearly has a very American set of references within it. Um, for example, the the aesthetic of, of rain that you see in the in the first part of it invokes basically what we have in our minds of of dirty coal fired industrial northern UK cities post World War Two. And there's I think many references in the in the film to to industry. Um, but the poem itself and it and its and its telling is really intriguing because in the first part there's this overreading, which is really bold and loud, and then there's this underreading, which is kind of a ghost of the other. But actually, when you listen to them, they're very different verses of the poem itself. Um, uh, so I'm not really sure how you're meant to kind of listen to it, but the only thing you can really kind of hear are the the bold words but the accent is really heavy and it kind of makes it quite a challenge to make out what is being said um but all of that said what it's about clearly i think is war and possibly the it, it's also about post-traumatic stress not necessarily of personal kind but of the environmental kind and the words to me seem to say um how all sides in war are losers. Um, and in that sort of sense, what it invoked for me is a memory of Wilfred Owen's classic um, poem. Um, but, the po but the words in the poem are actually nonsense words as well. They didn't make any sense to me, um, which meant that a good portion of, of, um, of, the, of the first part, I think you're wholly reliant on the visuals. 
Um, and the thing that you see the most of in that in that first part is this kind of relentless marching. Uh, and it's illustrated, um, you know, through the same kind of striding walk of the character, whom you never see clearly at any point. He's basically this kind of shadow man moving through this kind of decaying landscape, walking in gloom. Um, and, and for those kind of portions of the sentences that you don't quite catch or don't make sense of, what fills the gap is this kind of pouring rain, which at times is so loud and so overbearing um, that you, you can't even hear the poem. Um, but then when I have another listen back to it, I don't think the sound varies at all. Um, so it's really kind of the way that it makes you zoom in and out of the different layers of it that's kind of intriguing in that first part. In the second part, it starts with a howl of wolves or what you call coyotes, um, Ricky. And, and the image is, is kind of heavily focused on these industrial chimneys spitting out smoke. Um, and the, the poem is, is being spoken over a factory tannoy, uh, or it seems to be. And the scene is sort of played backwards and forwards. And I'm never really sure why it's sort of played backwards and forwards. And this kind of poem verse is weird because it's about colour. And it mentions lots of well-known artists, but the images are black and white, or at least they, are, they seem to be in the first part of it. Uh, and again, you've got this kind of over-reading and this under-reading. And, and it seems that somehow that what is being said, not in so many words, um, but basically what you, what you kind of get the, the sense of is that art is being invoked over the visualized industrial processes. A form of recovery from war perhaps, or a dream of a possible future. I'm not really sure. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, but as it progresses, you kind of get a strong sense that the process of manufacture is also the process of war and turbulence, which is kind of well illustrated through the use of the Grand Theft Auto game for this particular film. Um, so this part of the poem, I think is quite, um, you know, that you get a, quite a clear sense of tension between the visual and the word. Uh, and I think that's really well crafted. That kind of tension is deliberate. And then um, I'd say that because part three, what you see is something completely different. Um, first of all, it's in color completely. Uh, and the industrial sounds are distant and the natural sounds of birds and crows are much more dominant. Um, and the scene, I think, having said all that, is one of utter bleakness and industrial desolation. But there's some really quite clever words um, which you, you're kind of forced to think about a little bit more. Um, uh, and, the, and the words uh, that I picked up on are things like when facing the world, um, you negotiate it in solidarity. But in solidarity with what exactly? And I think the only thing that you can kind of make sense of is that the solidarity bit is in reference to nature. And the industrial machinery that you see is, is of nodding donkeys, which in, in Grand Theft Auto is clearly related to oil fields, but in Northern England would have been references to mine pit heads. Um, so it's kind of an interesting comparison, but it's also evidently a metaphor for the industrial versus the natural world. All the mines in the UK are now dormant, of course. Um, and it kind of leads you to the, the title of the work. And it, 
sort of you know raises the question who exactly is the wolf that you're facing um is the wolf perhaps industry is it a reference to wall street trading perhaps of commodities such as coal or oil or is it the animal that you see trotting through the landscape and approaching the man in the end of you know towards the end of that third part of it i think there's a real play on meaning of, of words and themes and, and that interplay, the more you get into it, the more you kind of see just how many levels there are in this in this film. And, you know, one of the things you might ask is, is um, Grand Theft Auto the most appropriate game to show that interplay? And I, actually, I think it is in this particular instance. And what's interesting um, is uh, the the interview on the website um, on the um, Milan Minishinima Festival website states that the visualizations and the verse grew kind of organically together through an interplay of sharing and development where the artists um, say they drove each other into a, a darker and darker space. And they are clearly complementary. Um, I don't think you would make the connection to some of the themes um, in, the, in the poem without the, vil, uh, the visuals. But equally, I don't think um, hearing the poem being read in a Northern accent or indeed the soundscape itself would make you understand what the visuals are about. Um, so there is definitely this kind of um, tension and this kind of complementarity. Uh, they also said that, that actually it's a reflection on war, loss, grief and class struggle. Now the, the war, loss and grief I got I, I, you know, I could pick that up in what we were seeing here, but class struggle, um, if what you're dealing with here is war and industrialization, aren't those everybody's experiences? So that I didn't get, but um, a really interesting pick. Um, thank you, Ricky. I really enjoyed sort of thinking about that one. It made me think quite deeply about it. Yes, you did. Um, you're certainly looked at it in a more deeper level than I did. And uh, some of those things are fascinating. I see uh, those things that you're talking about, but I have some comments about them uh, later after we hear from Phil and uh, Damien. Phil? Yeah, I, I've, something that I really latched on onto that you said there, Tracy, was that that uh, how the poem really, it, it can't stand on its own. Not that it can't, but it doesn't stand on its own in the same way that it does with the visual. That there is a, there's a real interdependence there, mm -hmm. uh, which I think ties into how it was made, that it was made collaboratively and at the same time. That's very unusual. It is. You know, an, an adaptation typically happens after something else already exists. And okay, now it's my turn to take that and transform it into something else or riff off of it or whatever. Uh, even in music, you have a jazz standard, you know, a Gershwin song, and then a jazz artist will take that and, and improvise off of it. And the, the idea that, that those things were created together is, it's a little mind blowing to me. Like, how does that process work? You know, that's, yeah. that's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm involved in a project right now, um, which we'll be releasing sometime before the end of this year, where, I did the audio and someone else is doing the video. Um, and there was, so, there's some interplay there, but not wholly from the beginning. Um, yeah. And I think that, that it ends up 
creating something very unique um, because the, the poem, it is part of the, the, the film and the film is part of the poem. Yeah. Um, it's not a film about a poem and it's not a poem about a film. It's something else. And uh, yeah, it's a little, I, I didn't get nearly into the deep analysis as you firstly and foremostly, because as we were leading up to this episode, I realized that I'd watched the wrong film because Milan <laughs> had switched it out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, I assume it still makes a similar impact when someone watches it at 1.5 X, which is what I did. Um, <laughs> But uh, the the sound, uh, I thought the sound was used very effectively. Even though, as, as Ricky mentioned, it it appears to to be mostly, if not exclusively, in game sounds. Well, if you're going to do that in GTA or in Red Dead Redemption, you're you're in good company if that's what you're going to lean on for your sound. You know, it's it's some pretty amazing soundscapes going on there but the part that really jumped out to me was with the what did you call them the the something donkeys the, the nodding donkeys yeah, yeah is that what know, those the, are called the, um, the, yeah the, the oil yeah. derricks well yes. it's not a derrick it's, it's, yes. yeah whatever that thing is called i've pumper, never heard oil. nodding donkey it's perfect nodding though. donkey that's what we call them there's donkey. there's some scenes particularly in the third part where that's really in the foreground and the sound of that this kind of repetitive uh, industrial machine sound. It reminds me a lot of uh, uh, some Nine Inch Nails from the early 90s. He would incorporate a lot of live captured weird mechanical sound effects like that and then weave them into a song. And this this just had that kind of this lumbering behemoth metallic sound. Um, it made me, made me forget everything, you know, what I was seeing before that and just fixate on that um, and I think there's moments throughout this where uh, the sound really uh, if it is indeed all from the game they really captured it effectively and put it to good use I think um, anyway that's that's me I have no poetic insight whatsoever but, <laughs> but I could have watched it and analyzed it over the course of the past week and still wouldn't have much to contribute there so it's not how Thank I'm you, wired Phil. how about you Damien Damien, somehow, what did you think? Yeah, somehow I could have followed up on all of that. <laughs> um, I'm going to concentrate more on the, the visual side of it. Um, uh, Tracy, you, you mentioned that each one looks very different, and that's true. The first one, it's the game is basic the visuals, but it's nighttime. So it, it's dark and it's gloomy, and he, the, the characters walk into this desolate... It's the drain pipes that you have in L.A., um, the, the channel, the, the LA River, yeah. Yeah. LA River, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's just walking along that, and that's basically the visual side of it. And that's his journey, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't. The scenery doesn't change. He just he just does that, and the poem is narrated over the top of it. And then, of course, you go on to the second one, which is black and white. Um, but it's not just black and white. It's made to look like old black and white, mm -hmm. like you'd expect something to be made uh, if it's filmed. Like, 60 or 70 years ago the kind of cameras they had back then because it's it's very bright white and it's very dark black and there's not much in between mm. and um obviously it took a lot of time to do it and it's very even though the first one is dark because nighttime somehow the black and white makes it 
even darker, even though you've got some bright sections to it. It's something about the way the blacks really is really dark black. And I think it adds to the tone of the, the poems. This is even darker now. And then, of course, the third part, which is daylight. So suddenly you've gone from darkness, more darkness, to desert in the middle of the daytime. And of course, that's going to be very bright. But even so, it's the desert. So it's all desolate. There's nothing there. There's, or, you know, he's walking along a road that's, it's kind of cracked and old. So you've got this, even though it looked brighter, it's, he's still not in a good place because there's nothing there. And it kind of adds that whole, um, I, I can't really go into the, the poem in as depth as you did, but that whole, the war and the industry and we've moved past that to this third part, but it's still nothing good here because all this other stuff's happened. And that, that's kind of what I got from it. And you've got the, 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 the nodding donkeys, um, that sort of the remnants of all the industry that we've seen in the previous video mm -hmm. uh, and the river, which is you know just nothing there at all in the first one. So it's like nothing has really improved, even though it's, it looks better like because it's brighter you can see everything but right nothing. right yeah that's kind of what i took from it and the official style fascinating fascinating i'd like to uh point out the dis difference between prasenberg ridge which we uh reviewed last week and this film in prasenberg ridge the ideas of the story world war ii uh bravery desolation fear angst death were all combined uh, clearly and effectively with the visuals. So there was no difference between the two. In Facing the Wolf, we have an entirely different way of using visuals with the kind of poetry as a story, poetry as idea. And the, the problem I have is that the filmmakers made the film they wanted to make. Um, there's a, uh, a quote in their interview where uh, Ian Douglas, I think, says, I think the characters in this machinima speak to my dichotomatic belief that the world is both full of the worst kind of people and that our collective empathy, solidarity, and faith in the best of humanity will overcome any attempts to destroy it. Interesting idea, but watching this film one time would you get that idea from the film no, definitely not. no not at all so what it requires it requires more of an effort from the viewer you have to watch it multiple times as uh tracy pointed out the accent and the sort of gibberish words at the beginning sort of distance between the two so the idea that they're clearly complementary is not clear in a single viewing perhaps in a multiple viewing or in a deep view like you had in your awareness of, of, of uh, uh, British northern cities mm -hmm. and, and all of that war it would make sense. But it didn't to me. What it did to me was suggest a noir scenario. All of it suggested a noir scenario. So the idea of having an overlaid narration made sense. So I was sort of expecting a kind of commentary on the actual visuals that you were seeing, but they're not. They're abstracted ideas that are somewhat separate initially from the, uh, they only connect in, in terms of ideas. They don't connect in terms of story 
or character. They don't say, and as I was walking through the LA River, no, no, it's none of that. It's all heightened stuff. But I think the artistic work on it and the care in which they, as you pointed out so beautifully, Tracy, the distinctions between the three come to fruition in the idea that Mario Batani uh, said in the interview, which is it's a parable. And I think that's a very good way to look at it as a parable of the human condition. The problem is the visuals are so fascinating and interesting that you don't want to listen to other that, that other stuff. You don't want to pay attention to those other ideas. You want to see the story of the thing that you're watching. So I think this kind of work depends upon the viewer. It's much like modern art where the ambiguity that's being shown in the film really affects certain viewers, certain viewers who want to see all of these connections like Mario Batani, because that's the kind of film that he wants to show at Milan Machinima Festival and regular viewers like Damien and myself and Phil and you too, Tracy, mm -hmm. who in a way just want to see the story that's being shown in it. Uh, so I, I think it's a fascinating film and it's the kind of film that should be made. These sorts of films should be made all the time, but they aren't necessarily successful on only one viewing. You, I think you make a really, really good point there because I would not have enjoyed this so much had I not have looked into the background of how it was made. And the mm. minute the minute I started to sort of discover how they created it. I mean, these two guys are lifelong friends. To your point, Phil, how did they do it? They're lifelong mm. friends. They literally shared clips and bits and pieces as they were working on it because they'd been used to doing that. Um, wow. So it's not only, you know, it's not something you can necessarily pick up so well with folks you don't know so well and, and then riff off each other. Uh, with, you know, these guys said they drove each other to a a darker and darker place they you know they clearly knew each other inside out to come to come up with this the the, the three sort of parts of it um, but I don't think you get that in just the watching of it I think you know that somehow you've got to communicate how it was made in order to get to a deeper level of understanding and appreciation uh, uh. of it of it as a as a film and unfortunately, you know, when you just watch, you know, when you just watch and find these films and see the interviews and whatnot, it, that's not well explained. It's never yeah. well explained. And we've, you know, we've commented on that before. Once you know a little bit more about the creative process of it, you, you come at it from a different perspective. And that's where I came at it from. It made me want to look at it at a, at a, in a different way. Um, but without doing that, I think I'd have come to exactly the same conclusions as you guys have done. Um, but that that detail, that that you know, um, collaboration, and the and the way that they drove each other down into it, that's what makes that quite an interesting film for me. Yep. And it doesn't work. I think you know that that uniqueness comes from that collaboration. But how do you explain that? Yeah. I don't know. Because it's such a unique project, it's hard for people to realise they need to, they need all the information, like they need to know how it's made, mm -hmm. and you can't just have one part of it. So that calls into question the idea of 
certain kinds of films, mm -hmm. idea films. Do you have to have more information than the film provides in order to appreciate it? Now, that certainly is the case with many modernist films. People, well, people would scream at uh, at uh, Luis Buñuel, Andalusian Dogs, or uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, because he he leaves ambiguity in it. But in those cases, he still tells the story visually. I could take this film, remove the audio entirely, add my own audio to it, in the form of uh, of uh, ambient sound and um, not even narration, not even add words. And it would stand on its own as an interesting film. At mm. one point in the first part, the guy that's walking down and you never see his face. So he becomes a type as opposed to a character. He's going down, he stops. There's a distant shot from railroad tracks or subway tracks. The subway passes, he's gone when the subway is at the end. How many times have we seen that shot in a noir film? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in a way, the tension between the, the text and the visuals made it hard for me to be able to appreciate the two together simultaneously. Partially because of my own expectations as a filmmaker and as a viewer of, and lover of Nora films, but also because they make it hard. They don't make it easy for you. Here's a question too, and uh, I don't know if there's a way to ask this in a way that, that isn't abrasive, but like if a film can't have its intended impact, be it story or idea or poetic or whatever, without something from outside the film being used to enhance your understanding of it, is, is that a failure on the part of the filmmaker? I kind of ask it rhetorically because I don't think that there's a concrete answer to that, but I guess I can say that I would, that I would look at it that way, but that's because I don't make this type of film generally. But if I made a film and at the end of the day, I had to explain something to someone before they would understand the film at all, I'd feel like I hadn't succeeded because the film should stand on its own enough. And if there's ambiguity, it's deliberate. It's with intent. You leave spaces in there on purpose because you want the viewer to fill it in with their imagination, that kind of thing, you know? Um, ambiguity is a dangerous thing to play with because of that. That if you're, if you're doing deliberate ambiguity, you can't do too much. It's like too much salt in the, in the soup or something, you know? But I don't know. It's it's just it's it's an open question. Not 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 intending to assume uh, criticism, but I just wonder if 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 the film does rely on going and delving and doing research um, to get out of it what was intended. Isn't it possible that there would have been a way to make the film where that wasn't needed? Um, so that everything's right there. Well, maybe it's no longer you know? a film. Maybe it's just art. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, that. that's fair. And, it, and if it's art, then the gallery that it's presented in is the thing that provides the context. 
Oh, that's a yeah. great answer. That's um, very fair. Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure that it's the right answer though, because <laughs> well, here's the thing, because <laughs> but it's an answer. It, it is. is it is an answer, but how long were the three episodes together? Or the three parts of it together? Nearly and, 20 minutes. Well, would you sit in a gallery and watch something for 20 minutes? Mm. And do the background research on it? Mm. Very unlikely. If it yeah. was interesting, yes. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Although I have to say, I almost bailed halfway through the first episode <laughs> of this. I said, no, no, don't go get yourself a piece of toast and a cup of coffee. Stay <laughs> with it. Stay with it. You know, I'm glad I did. It's worth acknowledging, too, that sometimes uh, digestibility by the largest possible audience is not the filmmaker's goal Absolutely. or the artist's goal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that in, in other words, mass consumption. That's that's, you know, I think we're we watch a lot of content that is intended to be enjoyed by as wide an audience as possible. Um, but it, it is worth remembering that sometimes an artist makes something uh, that they intuitively know not everyone's going to get this. Not everyone's going to like this. Like, not just, well, people are fickle, but I've made this such that not everyone's going to like it. But the people who do invest emotionally or intellectually into the art and engage with it, that's going to be really rewarding for them. And so that's worth it. So maybe that's kind of, maybe that is, this is of that class of work. Even that, if that were true, Phil, mm -hmm. the ideas that are being expressed that they talk about, the idea that somehow our collect, we have to share our collective humanity and that even if, if uh, industry and war it makes it hard for everybody. Our collective humanity will overcome it. Are those original ideas? No. Are those creative original ideas? No. The same kind of thing has been addressed in many different forms in films, in paintings, and in, in poetry. Wilfred Owen is a great example of that. Um, so the originality of it isn't particularly new. I think what you're getting at is that it's a personal film. Okay. And perhaps, and perhaps it's so personal that it doesn't let everybody in on it. I think that's fair as well. I think that's a possibility too. Yeah. They made this film, and it wasn't as if they said, "Hey, we're going to make this film for the Milan Machinima Festival." I mean, they did submit it, but still, it's their personal film, and sometimes a personal film like that has its own language that mm -hmm. isn't necessarily accessible. It reminded me a bit of in my theater background of a German uh, uh, director and writer, Bertolt Brecht. He was a very political animal and he created plays that had what he called the alienation effect, meaning that he didn't want the audience to become emotionally involved with his characters. He wanted them to be characters and symbols at the same time of ideas that he thought were more important than an emo your emotional response to their characters. Hmm. Now, ironically, in actual practice, very, very few directors actually direct their films according to his instructions using the alienation effect because audiences run for the exits as fast as they can hmm. because it's just infuriating. 
what they do is they direct it for its emotional effect. But it made me think that perhaps these two politically active and politically thoughtful people know about Brecht or instinctively understand his idea and want to express their passionate political beliefs in a form that is unique and popular. And this is what they've come up with. And it creates a, a, a split because on one hand, those people, as you point out, Phil, uh, and, and the rest of us who are oftentimes interested in the uh, sort of popular involvement, emotional involvement, and the other types of people who want to understand the ideas and the political points that they're trying to make. But I think if you're going to do that, you'd better come up with a new fucking idea about politics. Or at least a new way to say it. Or a new way to say it. Yeah. And I'm not so sure they that's did a great that. point. No. Great point. That's a, a fascinating point and really, really well made, Ricky. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I have to say, though, despite all of our criticism, despite all of our disagreements or frustrations with the film, this is the kind of film that should be made more often in Machine yes, Cinema. I agree 100%. More people should create personal films that express their intent and ideas in ways that are not popular or not in the popular vein. Too often, filmmakers look to popular culture or popular television series and just want to ape that. They just want to take that and recreate it. Now, that's fun. That's exciting. But it, it's very boring because a thousand other people are doing it. A million other people are doing it. This is the kind of thing that you go, that is a unique film. That is an interesting film. And I want to see more of it. And I hope and and on their page, Tracy, you pointed out that the on their actual website, they have several of their other films. They do. That are there that are very interesting. What's the name of the website? Uh, that's a good point. Um, Artschoolmodpoet.com. Cool. <laughs> yes. Snappy. Go check it out. Check out the other films. I think you'll find them equally interesting. And we would like to hear very much. Of, of, excuse me, before I do the closing spiel, do, do you, does any of you want to add something at the end here? No, I think you've nailed it. I don't think I can oh. add anything else to that. Thanks. Thanks. Um, anyway, this is a really challenging film. We'd like to know, our listeners, what you thought of it. Please send us your reactions, your thoughts. Do you disagree with this? Do you think Phil's a, a buffoon? Um, <laughs> That's neither here nor there. <laughs> no, Phil. No. That should just be a single checkbox. Yeah. <laughs> Radio button. <laughs> Thanks for taking in good humor because I meant it seriously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 are you kidding come on i'm just having fun with you uh, it makes me think of that great picture we had at the machinimo festival where i'm doing some sort of yeah that was so great i love that anyway if you have some ideas about this film if you uh, want to share other films with us please contact us we we read everything and if it's interesting we'll put it on the show we'll talk about it talk at completelythemachinima.com all of the show notes uh, to this and links to all of the things that we were talking about, including Bertolt Brecht's alienation effect, ooh, uh, will be on the show notes at completelymachinima.com. 
So thank you guys uh, for talking about this film. It's interesting to note that this is the kind of film that brings out conversation, which yeah. is, I think, in a way, the intent of the filmmakers is to have you address ideas and, and things like that. So uh, thank you to uh, Ian Douglas and Mark Coverdale for making this film and providing such a lively debate on it. And thank you, Tracy, for your wonderful comments, as always. You're five steps ahead of me all the time. Phil, <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, and Damien, thank you. Your, your points are really well made. Okay, guys, that's it for the show. Uh, remember, next month, we're going to be splitting off the news section into a separate blog, and we'll be doing the films uh, individually um, uh, and talking about them. And perhaps if an important news item comes up, we'll talk about that on the show. And we might have a separate episode on a discussion question. I can think of several that have come up during uh, this uh, particular episode. So thank like, you very much. Like how this. big a buffoon is Phil? <laughs> Capital Coming B or next. small B? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody, take care. Thank you, Tracy, Phil, and Damien. Thank we'll you. see you next bye -bye. time. Bye-bye.